Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of Now. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Star Trek from the Holodeck. I am Michael Flores, your host, and I am in the uh, the captain's seat with David Sabal, and he's at the helm. Hello. Hello. It's better to be in the captain's ready room, I guess. Yeah. But why not? Yeah, the ready room. <laughs> I've always had a problem with that name, though. For some, I know. <laughs> maybe it's my own like sexual problems, but I, I when I hear hear ready room, I hear like sexual preparation. <laughs> Does that you does, start hearing that porn music? Play. Yeah, I'm like the ready room sounds to me like a green room for sex. Like, <laughs> hey, sit here while we prep for a sex scene. Maybe it's just maybe I'm after in the head. Maybe, maybe. Well, no, maybe it's that influence of Captain Kirk. Sometimes I wish I'm less like Captain Kirk and more like a Vulcan that only needs sex. Like what? Once a year? Is that what it is during the Panfar or whatever it's called? No, I think it's actually Wait, like not the Panfar. Uh, uh, whatever. Like, yeah. <laughs> whatever. Whatever. We're not trying to challenge ourselves or quiz ourselves on Star Trek knowledge, are we? Well, not yet. Well, we are doing a Star Trek show, so maybe, maybe we should have these things <laughs> on lock, right? We probably should know. There's just too much, though. Dude, there's, there's just, so much, but it's so fun. I know. It's, it's way more complicated than any other fandom. When you try to recall information... I find that I'm slowly forgetting more and more things because I've been watching Star Trek since I was seven, six or seven years old, and I don't go back and rewatch them every week. So little by little, I'm losing some of my information. I mean, I have actually gone back and started watching episodes of Enterprise and Deep Space Nine so that I can kind of refresh. It's funny you bring that up because, like, I find myself after watching four episodes of Discovery and getting into this series, I find myself literally trying to refresh my memory, like you said, and using Wikipedia to make sure, okay, that sounded sounded familiar. Okay, I'm going to quickly look this up. Yeah, I was right. It's actually in there. (laughs) But no, it's fun. I'm having a good time. But regardless, this isn't a Star Trek you know, remember when episode, this is a discovery edition of our show. So we're going to be discussing and breaking down Star Trek discovery season one, episode four titled the butcher's knife cares not for the lamb's cry. Dude. And I I love that title. That title is very appropriate. It's very Shakespearean S, which is what we want for Star Trek. Very poetic and very well chosen for the theme of this episode. Now, this episode is directed by Olande Usunami. I do apologize if I completely butchered that name. Oh, I would have butchered it. And written by Jesse Alexander and Aaron Eli Coletti. The synopsis is, with tensions and stakes high as Starfleet continues in their efforts to end the war with Klingons, Burnham begins to settle into her new position aboard the USS Discovery. This episode had a little bit of everything. 
had some fringe science, some actual science, starship battles, and character development on the Klingon so-called torchbearer as well. So we, there was no stone left unturned in this episode. We did, in fact, get a little bit of everything. We saw Jason Isaacs uh, commanding that ship once again without sitting in the captain's seat. Has he sat in that chair once yet? No. He doesn't even have a... He, he never sits. He does Yeah. What a great way to write very subtle character development without spelling anything out. Because they can very forcefully and clunkily just say, hey, you never sit. <laughs> hey, you don't ever sit. And yet they're not even really putting that much attention on that. And that is what I'm really enjoying about Discovery as a whole is the subtleties of story development. They don't need to explain or describe people by way of exposition, which is obviously we all know that that's a, a bane of my existence, but also the bane of television as well, uh, specifically television on, on net, regular networks. You have the, the, the need of the writers to over-explain themselves by way of schlocky exposition, and that's something that this show has completely just cut. They only tell us what we need to know. Um, the only time it gets a little wordy was a couple, of, I think the last episode was science, but that's that's on par with what Star Trek is. It's the science mumbo jumbo. Yeah, because they have to connect it to something real. Right. So that in the end, as a, as a Star Trek fan, you can always tell yourself, well, this technology is possible. And right. that, that's the whole thing is like feasible. They have to de describe this, the scientific mumbo jumbo, what they call in Star Trek. And basically they have to give it some basis in reality. Yeah. They had to, they have to make it feasible to, to individuals to say, yeah, that makes sense. That's something that Star Trek has always done. They've always been grounded somewhat in actual science. Yes. It's a collage of pseudoscience, but there's always a bit of reality with their science. It's very different than other science fiction, much like let's just go to the go-to, the other one that's very popular, that's Star Wars. Star Wars yeah. doesn't really bother to explain itself, and I think it works for what that is, but Star Trek's something very, very different. It's its own little animal. Well, that's why the biggest – that they the, the two franchises always get compared when it comes to their science because a lot of people point to the fact that Star Wars is a bit more – and uh, I, I hope I get the word right. Fantastical. Right. It's yeah. more fantastical. Yeah. It's more mythical th th and based on fantasy. Right. While Star Trek is more hardcore. It's like, no, we need to we need to base this. You got to you got to be somewhat intelligent in order to write an episode. Yeah. <laughs> you got you to gotta call in the big guns. You got to call in the big guns. Yeah. So notably, I'd say most notably this episode, it has stayed true to its course and the the politically intertwined, multi-layered theme of the show Discovery, which we're going to get into that. We've already discussed it in bits and pieces uh, throughout the last two or three episodes that we've done. But it's staying true to that. The, the very name itself, Discovery, isn't there just to describe conveniently the name of the ship they're on. It has to do with a lot of things. Discovery of who you are. Discovery of the unknown. Discovery of exotic unknown cultures uh, so the writers are, no, are not holding any punches when it comes to the wonderment 
of this fresh new series as well. And that's something that I found myself completely enamored with this week. And honestly, I'm finding myself getting excited emotionally more and more each episode and invested as the minutes tick by. And this is a feeling, David, that I just I had never thought that I'd find that again when it comes to Star Trek. It was something that basically a lot of Star Trek fans were worried about on that Discovery might be missing. And I'm 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 in the, I'm in agreement with you as kind of like this is that's one of the things that basically I was in the back of my head really worried about. And it's managed to rescue me. Like and it's something that I lost. Enterprise I think lost that it it, it didn't romanticize Star Trek anymore. Like it's something it it lost something. I'm not saying the writing was terrible, uh, specifically specifically the last two seasons of Enterprise I thought was very solid, but it lost its intrigue and and the wonderment, a thing that kind of appealed to the side of individuals that want to know of the unknown. Yeah. You know, the the little kid in you that, that wants to discover. And that's something I felt Star Trek had really veered away from even with uh deep space nine and i i love deep space nine but deep space nine uh, became less about science and, and a lot more about war and i think it was um needed for the time television as we have discussed time and time again david was at a was at a crossroads in the 90s in the late 90s they had to f- they were losing audiences and they were trying to find a new way to reel people in through serialized storytelling and Deep Space Nine did a great job with that, but it did lose something in it. It still had the spiritual aspect of it and the internal, you know, introspective of the character and, and humanity. And it explored all the things that make Star Trek great, but it lost the 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 wonderment. The wonderment, yeah. And this is something Discovery managed to do. The first two episodes were a great way to start us up, but it wasn't until the third and now the most recent episode to where I actually felt like it was in the 80s again or both when I because the 80s is when I watched the original series because I was seven and also of course next generation and it had that intrigue again and you get you got swept up in the in the story of it all yeah and uh, it's funny you bring that up because I had the same feeling also as kind of like after watching this last episode I was like going okay what what is it that's making me feel okay now it's starting to feel like a Star Trek episode and for me it's it's the fact that they finally are doing something that when I look back at Star Trek history, key points in Star Trek history that make it my favorite. What makes Star Trek great to me is the questioning of ethics. Yeah, you know, like what you said is like that that wonderment of going out there and discovering something that is unknown. But also for me was like the other flip side of it is like questioning if it's right or not. Like say for example, like in in uh next generation that was a huge thing for the the whole storyline of picard is the questioning of his ethics if humanity is right to be out there in space deep space nine it, it the the really the the thing that deep space nine i loved was the fact that how far is Cisco willing to go to win a war where he's stationed at right and if you notice, like for me, I started wa- uh, thinking about it after watching this episode. I was like saying the key points for me that I really enjoyed in every single Star Trek uh, series is when 
the characters start questioning their own ethics and yeah. how far they're willing to go. Right. And um, that's something that this show is not holding back. They're not, not holding, holding any back. punches. They're they're asking those those questions that have become the very cornerstone of Star Trek. And they've managed to get there very fast. And it doesn't feel rushed. It's been paced very well. The fact that we're on the fourth episode and we're already asking these questions and uh, we're staying true to to what Star Trek is, is a testament to the writing. And it's, and they're not letting anything go by as well. Not only are they asking the questions that are important to Star Trek, the ethical questions, they're staying true to the exploration and even questioning the aspect of war. So they're doing all of it really well, and they're managing to juggle all of it. And now, that, that by itself is just amazing to this point. Yeah, I agree. And we're going to get into all of that. We're going to break all of it down, the ins and outs, like we always do. Um, but first, a little bit of news from the Star Trek front, David. Uh, according to Discovery showrunner Michelle Yeoh, isn't finished yet. Now, spoilers are ahead, David. <laughs> I was about to say, I was going to say something about Chinese food, but. Oh, come on. <laughs> what, you, you, you can eat Chinese food, but you'll be hungry in less than an hour? Is that well, what you're trying to say? Well, look, look what happened to the Klingons. <laughs> yeah, they were hungry they were... less than an hour later. <laughs> That's so stupid. All right, so during the Q&A portion of the show's New York Comic Con panel, it was revealed that Michelle Michelle Yeoh was within the audience in disguise, and after the crowd erupted into applause, Yeoh jumped to uh, jumped on stage and talked about her experience on the series. Uh, now she vaguely alluded to coming back various times during the Q and A throughout jokes and discussions, like they do, and you could easily kind of chalk it off as uh, as something that we've all come. This is kind of a phrase that we've all kind of gravitated to on this network, and it's the Comic-Con quotes. You know, sometimes you can't really take what these individuals say at face value because they're at the Comic-Cons, and they're, you know, they're kissing babies and shaking hands and and blessing you in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> they're doing their jobs, and they're trying to entertain. So sometimes you can't really take everything they, they say to heart. However, towards the end of the panel, uh, executive producer uh, Alex Kurtzman I'm sorry, Gretchen, the co-showrunner, Gretchen Berg, confirmed that we will, in fact, see more of Captain Philippa Georgiou. And, and in a way, I know I figured that we would because Georgiou is actually a really important. We, we discussed it about it in the last episode. The trifecta of the brilliance. Trife, the trifecta of brilliance for, for the storyline of uh, Michael Burnham. And Georgiou is a major, major uh point for that trifecta yeah so i wouldn't be surprised if she makes appearances here and there it's just they're gonna have to be really creative with it they will and like for example in this week's episode um they brought her back in the way of a hologram and kind of like the last will and testament and the way they bookended it with this week's episode made for a great way to really bring back that trifecta of brilliance in terms of storytelling and writing that we talked about last week, about how do you manage to flesh out a character by way of other characters and keeping the focus on Michael Burnham and the development of her story and her journey. Well, you create a cast of characters, a true ensemble cast that aids her throughout her growth. As an individual. And you, of course, we talked about Saru and the role he plays. We talked about Sarek and the role he played. And then we, of course, talked about George Ao and the role that 
she played. And we even said that this isn't the end of her. We called it out last week. Her presence will be filled throughout or felt field. Jesus Christ, Michael, <laughs> learn to speak. Felt throughout the course of the show. And the way they did it this week was a great way to bring her back and help Burnham's character to reflect a bit on what had just transpired. And ultimately, again, we're going to talk more in depth about this in a minute, but I think in the end, I think she was able to make her decision based on listening to Philippa's final words to her. Yeah. So it's a great way to bring a character in for purpose and not for purpose because we all like Philippa, but for the purpose of our lead character and her own journey that she's going to be going on. And it was a great way to do it. And if they keep doing things like that, creative ways, just like you said, they have to find creative ways to bring her back. I don't think the best mode of transport for this type of narrative action would be always to utilize the writing gimmick of a flashback. I think flashbacks are played out. I, I think so far they've used flashbacks very sparingly and, I, and they've worked. And if they want to use flashbacks here and there, fine. I think it'll work, but continue to exercise your brain. And I hopefully, and hopefully the writers continue to find creative ways like we saw in this week's episode to bringing her back in a meaningful way. Yeah. it has to have some substance to it because like, just like what you said, we mentioned it in the past flashbacks take you out of the story. Oh yeah. They, they, they really do. If they're used too many times, it really does take you out of the story, uh, storytelling. Well, it's become a weakness in, in so many television shows nowadays. It's and, like a handcuff. And I'm never going to quit talking about this. And I know people that listen to our shows, Dave, like, Mike, you always bring up flashbacks. Well, once the writers quit using them as writing crutches, guess what I'll stop doing, Dave? I'll stop talking about stop it. Stop talking about it. But it's become uh, such a, a disease on modern television writing. It, no writers... It seems like there aren't any writers that are able to tell a story linearly anymore. It's always like, well, now we're going to explain this by way of a flashback. Here we go, guys. Let's go back in time. <laughs> Let's go around the sun and pop back into San Francisco in 1984. Yeah. it's it, And save some whales. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's it, But it, it's very true. I mean, it's sad that even, I, even when I remember uh, my old – uh, classes in script writing and everything else, flashbacks were always told to us that it's a writing crutch. Yeah. The writing crutch. Yes, my, my, exactly. My writing professor in college said, hey, um, if you have flashbacks, I want you to completely scrap them. I want you to X them out, print up your script, cut them out, and then tell your story without them. And if your story still makes sense without them, guess what you don't need? You don't, you don't need, the need the flashbacks. And if your story doesn't flow without them, guess what? Rework your story because you shouldn't be using flashbacks to tell your story. Yeah. Unless, of course, the story was designed that way. Of course, there's writing gimmicks and, and plot twists that work for those reasons. But if you're always utilizing flashbacks, come on, learn how to write. But and, it, and that's something. Do you remember we talked about that when we first spoke about Discovery? We specifically said Please, God, no flashbacks. Yeah. No can. flashbacks. We don't need those flashbacks. And that's what, um, um, not Gretchen Berg, who's the other, the other uh, showrunner of the series? My brain. Uh, 
Is it Alex Kurtzman? Should no, be Kurtzman. Yeah, he's one of the producers, but the showrunner who took over for uh, Fuller oh. when he left. Um, anyways, Gretchen Berg and the other co-showrunner, I, I apologize, I forget his name currently, but uh, he said that the first two episodes were a prologue and that the real pilot was probably episode three, but they wanted to set the story up and give a significant amount of background on our key player before moving into the main story. And he said, we could have done this through flashbacks, but we chose that this would probably be the better method of telling our story. And I agree. I would have been a little, thank can you imagine the pacing issue and how bad episode three would have been if it was actually episode one and we had flashbacks thrown in <laughs> the there flashbacks, oh. it, it would take you out of the story yeah. completely it would have been bad really bad but also alex kurtzman producer of discovery explains star trek discovery's klingons uh the writers plan to take the audience to a voyage within the klingon culture and this is something that you and i have uh discussed as well time and time again dave uh, and we're not talking about the klingon appearance uh that is in fact something that the producers have been saying ever since the first teaser trailer hit the web they said calm down we're going to explain why the klingons look different i'm yes. hoping they stick to that however this specific topic is less about the the aesthetics and the actual appearance, I should say, of the Klingons, and it has more to do with with the Klingons explained by way of their culture. Yes. And this was actually an interesting moment at the New York Comic Con this past weekend when Kurtzman explained what he's hoping to do. Uh, after, of course, somebody trolled him. Because if, if you guys haven't been to Comic Cons, there's a lot of people that just have no... Uh, social skills and they blurt out <laughs> ridiculous random questions. things and one person asked the question how come the klingons look african <laughs> <laughs> are you serious yeah oh my god oh, wow yeah he, he says they he just <laughs> he asked the question described as being the most african they've ever looked and to make them villains it could feel alienating and that's kind of what he alluded to. Okay. Now, this article is a little bit of paraphrasing as well. So bear with me, but I'm going to read and then I'm going to stop. Okay, Dave? Now, executive producer Alex Kurtzman said he wanted to address the Klingons. Speaking uh, for a long time, he said, at the heart of Star Trek is the idea that what we think of the other is a mirror to ourselves, he started. The core of Kurtzman's argument was that the Klingons will be shown in a multidimensional way and would not simply be othered or villains. It was important, he said, that we represent both sides of the war in a way that is understandable and relatable. We needed to know what it was like for them to go through this, too. He continues, he wanted to shift everyone's perspective of what the Klingons are because they've often been relegated to just being the bad guy. He added, uh, we're all created around the central premise of what the Klingons are, but the goal was to look, uh, for the lack of a better word, humanize them. So I could definitely get behind that. That's, uh, I think we were speculating about that, that that's exactly what the co-showrunners and producers were trying to do on this show. They were trying to show a, a more true-to-life, relatable story of the vault of the Klingons. And this is something that Star Trek has never really done. Uh, Enterprise did it really well, actually, with the Vulcans, and they had to deal with some type of, what, almost like a civil war of sorts amongst themselves. 
and now it's the time for the Klingons. And it's it's a, it's kind of 50 years too late. Not too late. 50 years late, I should say, because it's definitely welcomed. Uh, the Klingons have always been the villain. And I feel that sometimes when you over-explain villains... Uh, it loses you, its luster. Yeah, you, you take the fangs away from them, and they are no longer villains. And that is true for the most part. But so far, what they've done is their goal isn't... Discovery writers, their goal isn't to isn't to tell a story of a villain. Their goal is to tell a story about culture. About culture, yeah. And the culture clash and colonialism and prejudice. And that's the stories they're telling. It's not overt, thankfully. It's yes. subtle, but it is there. And that's the focus. And because that's truly the focus of the story, it's okay to explain the villain it works it's not because they're trying to create sympathy they're trying to explore a cultural ethical question which is which is the basis of what roddenberry's writing is which yep. is questioning social social cues and social cultures and stuff like that and seeing that it's just not our culture that exists it's we have multiple other cultures out there that they do things certain ways that to them is right because that's how they were raised. Yeah. And that's how their their civilization developed. And the one thing that I loved about the original series in uh, in Roddenberry's like his, his peak storytelling when it came to social uh him, him standing on a social soapbox was the fact that Roddenberry would do it to show that to try to show the audience that basically it's just not us. If we go out there in space, there's going to be millions upon millions of life forms out there, and they've probably been uh, been developed differently than us. Yeah, and a lot of people actually use that type of thought process to to discuss about our own culture as a microcosm. Yeah. I agree. And the guy, I think, was being a troll a bit at this Comic-Con exactly. when he trolled Kurtzman. But that's why I um, don't because, like trolls. Because well, it wasn't just there, – there was a a uh, progressive agenda there, which, again, Star Trek is progressive, and so am I in a lot of – in many ways. But he was trying to insult their choice of aesthetics for the Klingons by calling it othering. And I don't know if people know what that means, but it's a term that's been around forever, but it's recently kind of gained traction amongst uh, the intellectual circles of sorts and the people who um, who get swept up in protests and whatnot. It's um, not intellectual. It's just flat out <laughs> trolling. Well, well, what he did was trolling. Yeah. But there is a debate there in terms of othering. And I'm going to explain what it means uh, by othering. It means any action by which an individual or group becomes mentally classified in somebody's mind as not one of us, rather than always remembering that every person is a complex bundle of emotions, ideas, motivations, reflexes, priorities, and many other subtle aspects. It's sometimes easier to dismiss them as being in some way less human and less worthy of respect and dignity. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because there's a relation there to be between, again, what some people are saying on the Internet with the Klingons by making them look more exotic and ethnic. They're accusing the writers of othering them. So showing them as a culture that's relatable to a real culture in our society and then 
distinctly making them different. Is that what they're doing? I would say that is what they're doing. And I don't have an issue with othering because a lot of people are against it. I don't have an issue with othering because, David, to be quite frank, um, other cultures are different. Yeah. (laughs) Like, just if we were to go in in the 1400s, let's say us as natives, Dave, because we're both have roots of ethnicity that's not Anglo. Let's say we were both to pick up our boats and we were to paddle over to Europe. Guess what they would be to us? Very different. different. Yeah. Very different. So I don't have a problem with that term because cultures are very, very different. And that's why That's why when it comes to trolls, I, I'm just going to say this about trolls. I don't want to get into it too much. Yeah, I don't want to get into too because much. Because there's a purpose of this discussion. Because like othering, other the, the term othering, and I've heard it. I'm like going, so you mean to tell me you believe that everyone on the planet is all the same? Yet different, right? So you're the same person that basically says the the world is flat, aren't you? Yeah. Oh man, (laughs) there's a flaw with the with the thinking of othering. There really is. Yeah. But bringing it back to Star Trek and what the writers are doing, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. This is a story about prejudice. This is a story about not understanding each other's cultures. That's the that's kind of the core theme of. The, at least the first season. So if that's in fact what the producers are trying to do, it makes sense. And I feel that it works in almost every way. I think it works every, in every single way with, in regards to Star Trek. Yeah. All right. So we're going to go to a very quick break, Dave. And then when we come back, we're going to break down the entire episodes, the ins and outs, the VFX, the writing, the acting, all of it. So don't go anywhere, Dave, or you listeners out there. Double dumbass on you. everything. The Rain Man Show. The Rain Man Show. The key advance raises the prospect of a fast-acting pill or nasal spray that a man could take hours or perhaps just minutes before sex. It would also save men from being trapped into having children they didn't want. Oh, of course, dude. Oh, poor men. Dude, dude, <laughs> scientist, right there. He's all, you know, I'm tired of these bitches. They always pregnant. I have sex with them. Yeah, these bitches What's get happening. <laughs> these bitches are getting pregnant, and I'm just tired of it. What if that was his entire drive through college? Tired of bitches getting pregnant. <laughs> tired of paying child support. I better get a college education. <laughs> that ain't gangster, though. Like, there's something, like, uh, flashy about putting on a condom. When you think condoms, it kind of gets everything going, ooh, sexual vibe. Like, I'm not into condoms, but when you hear about them and you have them in your pocket, it kind of spells sex. You know, it it's the whole situation. <laughs> you don't think sex when someone pulls out like a nasal spray. Excuse me. I got. I just want to make sure you don't get pregnant. So I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to go to the bathroom. I'm going to put this nasal spray in my, in my, in my right nostril. Hold on. Hold on. For more Rain Man, visit RainManShow.com. Have you ever wanted something so bad that you do just about anything for it? Well, that's exactly how we feel about you. That's right. AdamandEve.com wants you so bad. We're giving you 10 free gifts with your first order. You heard me right. That's 10 free gifts to spice up your love life. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, an adventurous toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. That's 10 free gifts for you shy types who've never tried Adam and Eve before. 
Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, a sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code DEAL30 at checkout and you'll get all 10 free gifts, including free shipping. That's offer code DEAL30. That's D-E-A-L-30 at adamandeve.com. What are you looking at, nerd? Huh? I thought I was looking at my mother's old douchebag, but that's in Ohio. <laughs> Saturday. But at the same time, then you wouldn't have this feeling that, okay, so Lucifer's just what? Sitting on his hands and knees? With King Shark. You're getting, I was getting, getting a, a shark, shark tattoo. tattoo. And like, I watched the episode after. the way it ended. I mean, you end it with Ray climbing the mountain, holding out the lightsaber to Luke. And Funny Luke that some of my favorite westerns are coming from the Euro countries. Mm-hmm. To this day, directors and writers are able to bring the heat in terms of American... Yeah, I mean, don't be wrong, Mad Max was really good, but they washed out a lot of it to kind of hide the special effects that they were doing. Yeah. And that's fine. Catch up on your favorite Rain Man digital geek shows every Saturday. DC on CW, Back to Tank, Weird West Radio, The Crossroads, and more. Geek Out Saturday on Rain Man Channel 001. Listen from the Rain Man digital app or tune in. Just search RM Channel 001. Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open Sesame! Star Trek to Star Wars. Yeah. And I know that's blasphemous to so many science fiction fans out there because so many people believe you can't be fans of Star Trek and Star Wars. Star Wars. It's weird. The producers of Star Trek would never go up against this on the same weekend as release of Star Wars and vice versa. That's just silly. It'd be silly, but oh my god! It, I think the geek community would just explode at that point. Oh my god! I'm gonna wear my Star Trek gear and I'm going to set phasers to kill for <laughs> any Star Wars fans that get in the way. <laughs> Good luck blocking that with your saber. No. Can you picture though if like we've always been speculating about like Dave Filoni's next project? What happens if it's a live action Star Wars film or Star Wars TV show? Yeah, and they put it right against Discovery. Oh, that would be something. Oh my god! What am I? Gonna- <laughs> Do. <laughs> Set phasers to full effect on Dave Filoni's penis. <laughs> oh, you can't defeat Dave Filoni's penis because we're going to put a ray shields over it. Take that, Star Trek baddies. Star Trek from the Holodeck, exclusively on Rain Man Digital. Go to RainmanDigitalMedia.com or Patreon.com slash RainmanDigital. End simulation. Energize. Welcome back. Star Trek from the Holodeck, the Discovery Edition. We're going to be talking about Season 1, Episode 4, the most recent episode of Discovery, found on CBS All Access. The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry. All right. Once again, the synapsis, David, is with tensions and stakes high as Starfleet continues in their efforts to end the war with Klingons. Burnham begins to settle into her new position aboard the USS Discovery. All right, so this continued uh, this week. This episode continued its voyage into the chaotic internal struggle within Michael Burnham. Her human emotions, this is an aspect that I'm actually falling in love with. Her human emotions and her Vulcan upbringing 
is continuing to make things tough on her when it comes to decisions and how she interacts with the crew, particularly with Saru in this episode. Of course, by being disingenuous when she asks for his help. (laughs) And she kind of used him for a little bit of like bait, I would even call it. I mean, there was no danger to him, even if the creature ended up being dangerous. Still, it was a very douchey move. It was. <laughs> I mean, if you would have called me to like uh, a dark room where you had this giant bear in a cage <laughs> and I couldn't see them, you're like, hey, Mike, come here. <laughs> come here real fast. I need you to help. I need you. I need your help on something. Come here. Stand really close to his cage real fast. Like, yeah, it's a douche move. <laughs> it's a very douche move. So I liked it because she wasn't trying to be douchey. It's a very cling. It's a very it's a very Vulcan thing to do. Yeah. And it's a great way to kind of sow those seeds of distrust between Saru or I'm sorry that Saru has with Burnham. And the tension between Saru and Burnham remains very much alive. Uh, But it's not the tension that's the focus. It isn't tension for tension's sake. It isn't just trying to create drama out of thin air so we can have a a grand melodramatic piece of trite. (laughs) You know, this was just one of several examples this week that when strung together, Dave created like an emotional narrative conflict for Burnham. And it was something they have continued to do since the moment we were introduced to her character in episode one. Yeah. This was interesting to watch for multiple reasons. To see the internal struggle and to know what's going on within her mind, you know, the questions of ethics versus logic, it's very real. And it's very true to Star Trek. The classic Vulcan line, David, my, one of my favorite lines that I quote all the time in my life when I want to get my way. The needs of the many... <laughs> outweigh the needs of the few and that's kind of the question they posed without really saying it yeah you have to save a mining outpost in federation space right yes so do you sacrifice and torture this creature that we find out is connected to the spore drive it's very it's it's, it's very essence lives on it it seems like it it feeds on it, it connects with it, it reads it, it becomes a part of it. And you're torturing and connecting this creature to it. And yes, that's very dark. But you have that question. The needs of the many, do the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few? Yeah. I mean, how beautiful is that? That's the first thing I thought. The minute she started questioning through her, her human curiosity... When she started questioning whether or not this creature was what his true intent was, was this creature very evil or for real evil? Was it evil? Was it misunderstood? And then she went about the first, I'd say, first act of the episode investigating. And the moment they posed that question to the audience, I knew I was like, you know what? This thing isn't bad. And this is going to be a this is going to she's going to have to make a very tough decision. Yeah. Does she allow this creature to be weaponized? It's a dark question. It's a dark question because like the thing that that, uh, you bring up, you bring up the tried and true old Star Trek uh, question of the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. When I, when I saw this, the thing that 
I thought of was the we've discussed it in our, our bonus shows, the encounter of Farpoint. The encounter of Farpoint, this is the exact same question. God bless you, David. The 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 thing is, is kind of like will Burnham actually make the Picard choice, which doesn't seem likely because she has a captain that's not like Picard. Lorcum is not like Picard. Lorcum is basically Lorca. Or Lorca. The the funny part is this whole episode, Lorca reminds me of Captain Kirk taken to the extreme. Lorca doesn't has no fear of death. I think Captain Kirk and you strip away his ethics. <laughs> and you strip away of that is his ethics. Again, we don't really know much about Isaac's yet or Isaac's character and I'm sure it will be explained a lot later. The interesting but thing But as of now, I would agree with that yeah, assumption. Because when you watch Lorca and we discussed it before the break and everything about the subtleties that they've been doing with Lorca, you see it in Lorca It's kind of like he is kind of like that Captain Kirk type of character that he's a rogue. He's a rogue. Yeah. He does not have a fear of death. I just like that. He answered his uh, the hollow, whatever you want to call it, the holocom, his communication from the admiral, like it with his shirt undone and he's eating and he's eating. <laughs> and like the admiral is like, going, oh, you uh, you were eating in the uh, I interrupted you in, uh, in the middle of a meal. And Lorca's like, so, yeah, and, and he keeps eating, <laughs> he, you know. Was it just me, or did you get the very distinct impression that she doesn't like him? I don't think anyone likes Lorca. (laughs) It seems like the more we learn about Lorca, he's kind of a means to an end. He's just like in in wartime, you have to rely on the warlords, on the people who know strategy and war. And you may not be... You may not have lots in common with him. You may not even agree with his methods, but you know that you have to make a deal with the devil in order to save lives. The thing that the thing I, it's a very real question of it's war. It's a very real question of war. And if you think about it, Lorca is a more realistic military figure than anybody. I, I will say this. Anybody we've seen thus far in Star Trek, because Lorca reminds me of an actual general like, say, General Patton. Yeah, I would I would agree with that, man. And even even if you take Cisco, Cisco was a military man. He wasn't. There's a difference. They, they a have difference. military training. Lorca seems to be a true military man. That, man. That's what he yeah. is. He's not a scientist. He doesn't care about exploration. What does he keep telling Burnham? I need to win this war. Yeah, I need to win this war. That is something that basically someone like Patton would say. Yeah. And that's a general would say that. And there is a sense of honor to Patton. So I'm hoping that down the road, Lorca doesn't become a villain. Cause I, it seems like they're kind of setting that up that he might end up being the, the dark obstacle that Burnham has to overcome. I hope they don't go down that route. I can think of hundreds of other scenarios they, they could do to keep them at odds, but also give Lorca his own sense of honor. Yeah. If they do that, I'd probably like that more, but that also might just be the Jason Isaacs fanboy in me that wants him to stay around, <laughs> you know? So now Dave, let's talk about this ethical question and what caused it to even happen how, how the writers very craftily or expertly is probably a better choice of word. 
wove it into the story. And it was the fact that she discovered the creature known as the tardigrades. Is that how you say that? A tardigrade? I, I think so. A tardigrade. Now, they nicknamed the Ripper. So from here on out, we're going to go with easy route <laughs> and we're going to call it the Ripper as well. I like the name Ripper. <laughs> yeah. This organism actually is the missing piece to their spore problem and the technology that allows them to jump instantaneously by way of the spore drive. Now, it ends up being the hub that they hook in manually to some type of like he, he is an organic supercomputer of sorts. Yes. And it gave them instant navigational abilities. And what I liked about that isn't how it happened. It's it's a more deeper question. And it's a question of Star Trek and organisms and life and how all of it's important and how they showed that this creature, yes, is a convenient writing device, but it's a good one, not a bad one. I don't use the word convenient in, in an ill way. You find something that binds the galaxy together like this microorganism or macroorganism, as they called it, and you show how densely connected the universe is and how by way of a creature they can organically travel it's it's fascinating it's amazing especially if you know that the if you know anything about these creatures conveniently dave i actually read an entire article <laughs> uh about two or three months ago that popped up on my facebook feed about these creatures they're real yeah they're true microorganisms that are everywhere in, as far as we know, only on Earth. However, they have the ability to live in space. If you were to put them in space, they wouldn't die. They are so resilient. And this is a testament to the fact that the writers of Discovery have an agenda to stay true to the pseudoscience and the meshing of science of Star Trek and making it a very real thing and very realistic in their story. And I'm glad you brought that up because it took, I had to actually research this because at first I was like, eh, what the heck? So he could actually navigate. But then when I, when I watched the scene again and they're explaining it, I went and actually researched this and it's a, it's just like what you said. It's a real thing. A tardigrade is basically a microscopic organism that a lot of scientists are saying is the building blocks of what makes everything. Yeah, we truly don't know exactly everything we need to know about them. However, we're completely enamored with them, the science community, because the fact that they're everywhere all over Earth and they could they live in the very deepest regions of the ocean. They live in the very top portions of the mountains they're everywhere they're everywhere and it's led a lot of scientific theories how they are connected to us and our ecosystem as the years have gone by and the research has opened scientists are finding more and more reasons as to why these microorganisms are very important to us as humans and there's so many question marks on them because we don't know everything about them and for Discovery to kind of take liberties with science and to show how truly the, and, and then fictionalize them and make them connected to the very fabric of space as well is absolutely just it's mind numbing. It's mind blowing. I should say it's very mind blowing how they managed to take 
you know, a fringe science theory once again, like they've been doing for decades. Yeah. And turn it into something, uh, you know, scientifically fantastical in their in their show as well. This is what this is what makes Star Trek really great, because like like what we mentioned before, Star Wars is based on fantasy science. Star Trek is hardcore science. And it, it and that's that's what I dug about Discovery so far is that they're staying true to the past Star Trek's agendas. Stick to the science. Make sure that what you bring up is based on at least a fraction of some science so that as an audience, we could believe, okay, that is possible. That is possible. And when I, when I finished reading an article, it, it was actually interesting because the, when I did the science on the uh, tardigrade, they, it, it's actually in like major science websites and yeah, institutes that they're still studying this thing. Yeah. Dave, they are the most resilient animal known. Individual species of tardigrades can survive extreme conditions that would be rapidly fatal to nearly all other known life forms, including complete global mass extinction events due to astrophysical events such as supernovas, gamma ray bursts, and larger meteorite impacts. Some tardigrades can be can withstand temperatures known to 1K. <laughs> Jesus, 458 degrees Fahrenheit, close to absolute zero, while others can withstand 420 or 300 degrees Fahrenheit for several minutes. Pressures about six times greater than those found in the deepest ocean trenches, ionizing radiation at doses hundreds of times higher than a lethal dose for a human and the vacuum of outer space. They can go without food or water for more than 30 years. Drying out to the point where they are 3% or less water only to rehydrate, forage and reproduce. How amazing is that? And the thing I love about it too, if you look at the picture of a tardigrade, they in discovery they use yeah. the exact what it exactly looks like yeah it's so, a, it's fantastic it's it's so awesome that uh, they use that this week in the episode as the very core element of the myth arc for the season and also something as natural and organic as a terragrade to pose the ethical question of do we use this innocent life form that's connected to the very building blocks of of space do we use it you know it's it's so it's so it was so fun man when 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 they all put this together uh, or i should say when uh burnham put this together by the end of the episode and that's what i was talking about uh earlier in our discussion about the wonderment of star trek discovery the excitement that you get as you're watching the episode and the explain things you have that intrigue again and and again that's something that that i as a viewer of star trek have not had in years in years the true intrigue behind their storytelling and their meshing of science so now despite the astonishing aspect of these creatures uh as i was saying david the it, it it was there more than just to wow us with the mumbo jumbo science. It was the, in fact, the, the focus for the ethical dilemma of Burnham. The Burnham, creature was yeah. harmed when they utilized him as the hub to travel. Uh, this poses quite the question for our lead. What will she do? Uh, she did try. She refused to view the creature as a threat 
and discovered that it was a peaceful entity. And to round out the trifecta, trifecta of brilliance and to flesh out our lead, Saru, the warning aspect, as we said last week, served his purpose as well. Yeah, even though it was against his will. Yeah, and then George Zhao at the end, so, a somber reminder and bookending the episode with George Zhao with the weight of her death. Uh, this is a great way to end the episode of Burnham, and she needs to change what she's doing because that's a statement that Saru had issued towards Burnham and said, hey, you have not changed. And that was a nice little jab to our lead, Burnham, to say, hey, learn from your mistakes. Quit allowing your logic and your human emotions to cause conflict. Choose a path, the path that you know is right. And then when they ended the episode with, uh, with George Zhao's last will and testament, it was a powerful way to end the episode. And it left all of the audience with, uh, I think, with hope that she would, in fact, make the right decision and she would not allow this, this uh, magnificent organism to be tortured any longer. And see, that's the, that's the funny part. I think what's missing now is because we've had the two, the two parts of our triangle around Burnham make their case. I think down the line, whether it's the next episode or another episode coming up, because I have a gut feeling that this is going to be a continuing conflict for Burnham. Yeah. We need to see Sarek's point of view. And I guarantee you, is he gonna is he gonna drop that line on us? He's gonna drop the line that basically we all know. The needs of, of the, the many, many outweigh the needs of the few. Yeah, I, I would applaud I would clap if he says that's like, yep. Because guess what? That's what that's what Spock the, uh, I'm sure Spock had to get that from somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, man. It would be a great way to do a nice little callback for us hardcore old school Star Trek fans. Also, it just stays true to the you know, philosophical canon of the Vulcan culture, the Vulcan culture. And it's, it, it's like funny because you bring up the fact that, uh, it, is it the right, is it truly the right answer? Is it truly the right choice to keep the, to, for Burnham to choose to free this organism somehow to help this organism? Well, is it the, is it truly a right answer? And that, that's why I like about it is because at the end I hope it actually the audience actually starts questioning itself. Okay, if you were put in that position, what would you do? Yeah, there's a there's a lot of conflicting emotions there because it's not even an ethical question. Is what it's not just an ethical question. It's also a question of self self preservance. Like, uh, how do you ensure that you don't go back to jail? Because if she refuses to do what what uh, Lorca wants her to do He'll will, just go back will to he send Burnham back to prison so you're now also dealing with with uh self perseverance you know do i do i want to live a normal life or do you want to go back to jail so who's more important her own selfish wants or this macro organism and you got there's just too. there's just so many there's just so many things to question you got so many directions kind of like Lorca I don't think I hope that the writers don't portray Lorca like what you said as a villain, because like when when I think about it, Lorca is going to just basically be against the fact that basically let's free this creature. He has to win a war. So. It's it's that age old question that basically I believe that it, what it's going to come down to 
is Burnham's going to have two sides to her personality. You're going to have Saru and Georgiou on one side. That re- that's her moral compass. Yeah. And then on the other side is Beric and Lorca. Because... Well, Lorca is going to be the devil on her shoulder. I wouldn't even call him a devil because it's kind of like he's going to... That side is going to be telling her, telling them, well, if we don't do this, then all this bad shit happens. Yeah. So what's it worth? You know? Yeah. And that's why I, I really hope that just like what you said, when you brought it up, I, it, it just hit the nail on the head. They can't portray Lorca as a villain because it just take away from burnham's storyline at this point and also been there done that we've already been seen there, done that. if he ends up being section 31 it's something we've seen we we already know the sh- the shady dealings of section 31 but they're also a means to an end a they means to an end they have a purpose and i'd rather him just be a gray area character we don't need to see Lorca be the the main obstacle in terms of villainy he can be the obstacle for burnham that is like a hurdle but but for him to be the the end game for her i think that's um i think it's too i think it's expected and I, and so far with the the writing that we've seen and the skill that these writers are 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 displaying i i don't feel like they would take that such a very simplistic flat approach to yeah. lorca's character i think down the road when the time's right we're going to learn more about Lorca. Right now, he has to be the question mark. He has to be the mystery element because it works for the purpose of the story and where we're currently at right now. Now, that being said, we did see inside Lorca's, I guess, weapons office, weapons room, where he keeps everything. We saw a little bit of it last week, but we saw even more this week. Uh, they gave us uh, various cutaways where we were able to kind of take in more of the weapons. Unfortunately, Dave, I, I think I might be dropping the ball as a Star Trek fan. I couldn't really make out anything uh, that I that I could point out and say, yeah, I knew that, or I know what that is. Do you- I, I saw I saw a bat lift for one thing. Okay, the bat there- lift was just dead center. Okay, and then you saw you saw samurai swords because Lorca is a man of history. Okay, was there anything not obvious? That's why I was trying to actually gather. Too, I couldn't because find anything. I couldn't find anything, but I know that there's something in there. Yeah. And that's the beautiful thing about that scene is kind of like it makes you want to go back and constantly just rewind it and freeze frame it. Basically, it took me a while to actually figure out that the, the, the one thing in the background was a bat lift. Yeah. It was just a different type of bat. Well, they also look very different as well than, than the ones we've. We've we've grown accustomed to in the the TNG era. Yeah. All right. So this does take us to the Klingons, David. Vok and Lorel. Dude, I was actually kind of psyched about this. Because especially uh, when uh, I think it's Cole from the House of uh, Core. Yes. When they said House of Core, I was like, oh, I got giddy. Because for, for those out there. House of Core is the one that basically is connected to... There's a lot to, of Star Trek history. Yeah, there's a lot of Star Trek history in that one because House of Core is the one that starts the war against Captain Kirk. And then like later on, we see him in Deep Space Nine. And I'm like, like that's a cool callback. And we're seeing the beginnings of House of Core. Yeah. So I was actually thinking to myself, can I actually see a young Core? Because we we saw what Core looks like in the original series 
Maybe that's where they're going to explain why they look, why core looks human. Yeah. And sadly, we already know the, the end to their future, at least in the prime timeline. Yes. Uh, core and his son and son of Raynar was the last son of the house of core and his death in 2375 marked the end of that house. And that was in the D space nine episode once more unto the breach. So interesting choice. And it's a, it's a house filled, or I should say steeped and heavy star Trek mythology. There's a lot. This has a very, very deep history. I mean, the fact that they pulled from the house that, that I think, I think the very first time we, we were introduced to Klingons, right? In the original series. Yes. That yeah. was, that was core from house of core. Yeah. That is so cool. I love that connection. Uh, but besides that little, uh, little nugget for the Star Trek elitist, the, the usage of Vok and Laurel this week, they use them to explore and work out a way to kind of show and describe, or I guess I, I want to say visualize a little bit more the Klingon culture uh, rather than the one-dimensional Klingons that we've seen so for so many years. I, I really like what they're doing, and I'm glad they went with this decision. We are getting exactly what I've been asking for for years. Anybody who's uh, who knows my history as a Star Trek fan has known since Enterprise failed, I have said, why do we have to do a show about Starfleet? Why do we have to do a show about the Federation? Yes, that's the core of Star Trek, but why don't we do a true spinoff of Star Trek? And when you do a true spinoff of Star Trek, you don't have to keep to the to the the main themes and the the philosophical go tos that Gene Roddenberry has always littered through his his uh, his narratives and what, of course, Michael Burnham and, and Pillar and all the uh, showrunners and all the subsequent series have also tried to stay true to. You don't have to hold yourself to those because this would be a true spinoff series that can develop its own purpose and its own themes. And even though we're not getting that exactly, exactly what I've asked for, this is the next best thing. Yes. Rather than focusing on just one crew on a Federation ship, we're really getting an inside look into a Klingon culture. It's an inside look into an alien culture that can easily be used to explore relatable issues that can be used to draw parallels to historical nuances relevant with our own world. And that's an expertise that all writers of Star Trek have always managed to do. I mean, just the one that comes to the top of my head right now with Deep Space Nine and the questioning of occupying other cultures, like with Cardassians and Bajor. This is something not new to Star Trek, but they're doing it in a in a more realistic way. Yeah, and I think the one thing I really like about the way they're doing the Klingon storyline is they're showing the development of a culture. Well, they're, sh they're showing that we're not all different, and that yeah. that's an argument that Kurtzman probably should have presented to the individual that was trolling them at the New York Comic Con when he said, hey, all you're doing is othering them. You're making them very different, and you're drawing parallels to other, air quotes here, cultures, and we shouldn't be doing these types of things. 
in reality, the writers are doing the very opposite. He, they're actually doing what this individual wants them to do. They're drawing the audience in. And rather than painting them in this picture of, of villainy, they're showing us that they're not very different than our own culture. And of course, our perspective is Starfleet and the Federation. That they're real individuals trying to save their species from internal warring and to preserve their heritage and culture. Isn't that what most civilized cultures are attempting to do? Exactly. So it's a great way to really connect us with these characters who are not necessarily the enemies. They're just, it's another perspective. It's another perspective. That's why it's funny. Everyone brings up about the, the fact about Klingon cannibalism. Yeah. And I'm like, going, well, number one, that's not new. That's not new. Yeah, I mean, didn't Worf and Dax argue about this? Yeah, Worf and, and Dax Deep Space argued Nine? about it. This in Deep Space Nine, and Worf was telling, I forgot what she what he told Dax, but essentially he said he's Dax is truly not a Klingon until she actually eats the heart of an enemy. Yeah, and apparently that means that Worf has eaten someone. Yeah. So I think it was Deanna Troy. Oh. No. oh, oh. <laughs> He went back for seconds. Yeah, I would. <laughs> but like And then I'd be like, computer in program. The thing computer I tell, in program. <laughs> the thing I tell people is like when when everyone was like, Oh, I can't believe they did this in Star Trek to to glorify cannibalism. I'm like going, no. It's not glorifying cannibalism. This is what the Klingons were. This is what people don't understand. That other cultures, first off, there's a lot of similarities between these versions of Klingons and, and how we're, we're seeing more into their culture and the mythology of it all. There's a lot of similarities between them and the peoples of Mesoamerica. Mesoamerica, the Maori. There's a lot of connections there. And guess what the Mesoamericans did? Guess what the Aztec people did, David? They sacrificed people and ate people's hearts. Were they doing it because they were barbaric? Yes, but there was also a reason behind it. There was a sense of honor even for the ones they killed, the, the people believed it was an honor to die that way. It, Many of them. It had an ideological meaning. I'm not saying that that culture was, was also not very bloody and violent, but the very core belief behind what they were doing, it was an honorable act. So, I mean, this is people, people complaining about cannibalism, that you're, you're wanting to, to not other people. They're drawing realistic parallels to things in our world and plus the one thing the one thing that i crack up at is people call it cannibalism but if you think about it is it cannibalism klingons are not humans oh look at you so david if it were if it were cannibalism humans would be eating humans yeah good call good call the klingons are not human i think vok <laughs> even said that he's like guys i'm not really a cannibal right now i'm eating a human i'm eating a human there's nothing wrong with this there's nothing wrong with it because Guess what? I'm not human. Yeah, that's a valid point, David. <laughs> and that's what I mean. It's kind of like it irritates me yeah. when I see people make these comments. And I'm like, that's why I just ignore the internet. Do you do you not know what cannibalism means? <laughs> All right, so Dave, we have to move on, Dave. We must move on. Yes. So now, in order to segue to our last segment, David, a little bit of gripes. No, no, no. I, I don't want to say gripes. Questions. Now, I do want to say that the way they opened up the episode this week 
with the replicator that we were inside the replicator and the camera pulled out slowly, slowly, slowly. And you saw things forming and connecting together. And then by the time the camera was out, we realized that we were inside of a replicator that was replicating Burnham's new uniform. I thought that was amazing. I thought it was amazing. So effing cool. Just just to start the episode off like that, it's something very different. And that's a that's a, a, a testament to Brian Fuller's vision of what he wanted Discovery to be. He's a very visceral showrunner. He loves his vibrant shots, his poetic choices of framing. He he he's an amazing talent. And to see that they're still staying true to his desires and or his vision of Star Trek Discovery because that was a page the way we opened the episode this week was a page taken from Brian Fuller's playbook it was absolutely amazing now my gripe with it it looked amazing and was cool my hats off to the visual effects team but were replicators around at this time Dave here's the thing a lot of people have brought up this question but we also have to throw in the fact that we are on a ship that has prototype technology on it. Yeah. So you have to, yeah, replicators were not made, uh, were not created at this time. Maybe for they weren't main, Maybe they weren't mainstream yet. Yeah. And you got to also understand that basically look at the uniforms. The uniforms are completely different than what we would expect. Yeah. So... Discovery is a ship on its own. It has actually its own technology. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess I can, that can pacify me for now, David, but in the near future, I, I'm hoping, because I do love this series and I think it, it has the heart of Star Trek and it's not what I expected because I had a lot of, I had a lot of um, doubts about the series before we went into it. It looked cool, but I wasn't quite, certain if it was going to feel like star trek and and obviously if people are listening to the way we're speaking about it obviously i was very wrong however i'm hoping they don't continue to take liberties with all this technology um i hope so too and that might be because i'm a star trek baby and i some of the the technology is a bit bothersome because it, it obviously wasn't around it wasn't even around for next generation so like for example with the what was it the mirror that she looked at the holographic mirror yes i mean come on that was never used in star trek was it that was uh, that one wasn't yeah i mean they actually had mirrors in their bathrooms remember when they'd walk into their one of their rooms and and tng and uh, they had mirrors yeah so things like that I, i i get bothered by it i get it because we're it's 2017 and um they're trying to make the show pop and look cool so there's they're, they're taking liberties with technology, but I'm hoping they don't continue to do this because as the years go by, Dave, it's a little jarring. It's going, it's jarring for anybody who wants to watch Star Trek, like the original series. And then you watch Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and you're like, none of these things even existed in these later eras. So that's the only complaint I have. And I'm willing to swallow it for now, but I hope they slow down. Yes. Or they explain it away, like you just said. They have to explain it away because Discovery is 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 one of those ships. It's turning into one of those ships that I'm like going, where the hell was the Discovery throughout everything then? Right. 
Because if it was, if its technology was was prototype, everything in it at this point is prototype. Right. And I understand that that could very well be it because you even said, or not you, um, Captain or Lieutenant Stamets, I think his name is. He even stated today and made it clear that the Discovery ship, the entire ship was built for the purpose of his scientific experiment. Experiment. And and, and Lorca is like going, well, it's a warship now. Yeah. <laughs> it's- right. So taking that into account, I'm willing to swallow it right now and I'm allowing them to take liberties without getting annoyed with that explanation. However, look at the, the Shinzao. Is that how you call it? The Shinzo? The Shinzo. Shinzo. Uh, they had weird communication as well. Well, holographic images. And that was a ship that was already very old, according yeah. to Philippa. So that's my only complaint, I have to say, up to this point. They have to be really careful about and, trading but, on trading on like technology. But David, this is why I feel like they should just they should have just even though the fanboy at me and fan the fanboy in me screams, the Star Trek nerd in me screams and says no, they can't do that. But that's why a part of me almost wishes they Star Wars this and they just rebooted everything. Yes, Star Wars didn't get rid of its core movies. I almost <laughs> I almost would say it would have been better if they just said, F it, let's reboot this for real. And everything just goes away and nothing matters because you're dealing with 50 years of issues. Yes. 50 years of problems. Either that or they should have chosen a, a future time period. That would have solved many of the problems. That's why I said, that's why I said they should have at least connected this to the big question that all Star Trek fans before Discovery came out, they should have addressed it right from the get-go. Yeah. What timeline is it? Well, and not only that, I just, <laughs> I just, I honestly, there's a part of me that wishes they would have just said F it and made the hard decision to reboot the entire franchise. I mean, the chances of us getting a Star Trek four, you know, uh, Kelvin timeline is very slim at this point. It seems like more and more that we're losing uh, the, um, we're losing our chances as more and more time goes by. It seems like we're not going to be getting Star Trek four just because all the actors are getting other jobs. They're doing other things. Their schedules are filled up. They all say they want to come back, but there has been no official word yet that Star Trek four is in fact happening. So it's like, Hey, why don't we just do the deed and reboot the entire world? You know, because then these problems wouldn't have mattered, and then we can kind of move forward. Quentin Tarantino had an interview, um, I want to say two or three weeks ago, where they discussed Star Trek. And he's not an individual that I'd want to reboot Star Trek. However, he had uh, a pretty interesting idea of how he would do Star Trek. And he actually spit out some facts that made a lot of sense. And he said the core problem of Star Trek is it always goes back to Captain Kirk. Yes. And his time frame. And you write yourself into a wall every time because by far the most well-known of Star Trek crews is Captain Kirk and Spock. And because of that, the producers and writers are always wanting to hearken back to that era. And in a lot of ways, it creates a lot of writing problems. It does. 
And I agree with that. And I don't want to forget about Captain Kirk. I don't want to forget about Spock as a fan, but as a TV viewer and looking at the sheer academic side of it and the writing decisions, it's probably something that they should have done a long time ago. Like after Enterprise failed, they should have truly did a true reboot and not forget and forget about Kirk and forget about Spock and do something with a new crew that they can create an icons with. Look, uh, if that makes sense, I'm, I'm, it does. I'm, I'm it stumbling does with my words because I don't want to happen. But, but, but the realist in me says maybe it should happen or should have happened. It sh- honestly, the more that I've seen it now, the thing I basically tell people is whether we want to admit it or not, as fans out there, as geeks out there, as much as we want to admit it, the Star Wars experiment when they got rid of all the canon worked with the with the kelvin timeline no no no. like say for example talking about star wars or star trek what are you talking taking for parallels okay look at look at the two franchises star wars decided to look at their canon and say nope all of it's gone every single bit all the canon the only things that matter are the movies and they basically there was so much rage about it but now when you look at star wars it worked the stories are much better. They're being able to tell stories yeah, but, because yeah, of that freedom. Yeah, but at the same time, David, it's a very different scenario because they didn't retcon and get rid of Luke Skywalker and Han Solo. Yeah. Imagine if they rebooted and did away with those iconic heroes. I don't think it would have worked. And that's kind of the problem that you come up against with Star Trek. You can't retcon your iconic heroes, even though if they did, it would pave the road for better stories and less issues that you might run up against because you're writing within a universe that has 50 years of history. Yeah. So, and that's why, that's why I said the whole Kelvin thing, the whole Kelvin thing could have, should have worked yeah. when they brought it up in the movies about it being a parallel universe. I was like, no, just say, don't say parallel universe. They just changed time period. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> all right dave we do need to wrap this discussion why don't you give me your final thoughts in a nutshell and go my final thoughts for this episode episode four was very well uh, well done uh it wasn't as engaging as the first three episodes but it still kept me going and kept me interested in the story going forward so overall i would give the the episode probably a b plus it's very it, it's still very strong the writing is still very good i'm interested in where burnham is going now that we know what her ethical questions for the season is because that was the whole point was to actually establish what's going to be burnham's main question now what's her main conflict now yeah. we're getting actually seeing what her main conflict is yeah it's her morals and her ethics versus what is happening around her yeah All right, so I would agree with you once again, David. I would give this episode a solid B. It was a strong episode, but definitely the weakest of the bunch so far. Uh, Definitely the strongest episode today is the third episode. I didn't feel like it stumbled. I just felt like it was kind of a bridge to get to the next main issue. And what they did by drawing correlations between our culture here on Earth, actual history, and the Klingon culture was just poetic genius. Uh, the development of Burnham, and again, bringing in that trifecta of brilliance, as we're calling it, with Saru, 
Georgiou and Sarek and utilizing that to help expand the growth of, of uh, Burnham and use them as a way to bring about a resolve and solutions is just fantastic writing. It's, it's, uh, it's writing 101. It's how you should be writing your stories, utilizing all your characters to tell the story of one individual and at the same time, uniquely developing your ensemble cast as well. The questioning of morals and ethics and the go-to Vulcan line, the need of the many outweigh the need of the few, just fantastically done. I give them much kudos and applause for all the intricacies of this episode. However, the pacing, the actual writing, not the story, but the, um, the craft of the writing this week was a little off. The pacing felt weird. But other than that, it was solid. Visual effects was amazing. The production design is is just so on point. I mean, that set and the new sets we are introduced to each week so far just keeps getting better and better. And those of you who are not looking, and David, if you have not taken a look at some of the behind the scenes, our starships are built. Forget green screen. We're going old school like we should, just yeah. like old Star Trek. There isn't green screen backgrounds. There are for the, for, um, they call them set extensions. So they are there. But for the most part, the bulk of the sets are built. So hats off to visual effects team, the set construction, art department. Everybody's just working so seamlessly together to create just a beautiful finished product. So solid episode. Thank you, David. Thank you. And also, I want to thank everybody else for tuning in and listening. If you like what you hear, you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. Just search Star Wars from the Holodeck, the Discovery Edition. Issue? Edition. Edition. And it should pop right up on your feed. Also, leave us reviews. Give us a thumbs up. Tell us you love us, you hate us. If you want to disagree with us, please hit me up on Twitter at from the Holodeck, as well as my personal Twitter account at Michael underscore Flores. Let us know your thoughts and feelings on Discovery. Let us know if you disagree or agree or you want to add more to the to the discussion. Some thoughts that you had. Please share it with us and we will discuss it even on the air if you want us to. We're always looking for that uh, interaction with the audiences. Also, you can find additional Star Trek discussions that are exclusive to Patreon at patreon.com slash Digital, and you can pledge $5 or more a month and you can gain hours more of star trek discussions we talk about what deep space nine voyager q uh the borg we did an entire gamut of shows on the mirror universe and how it all works i mean we've done a lot so again thank you david thank you live long and prosper i couldn't help but notice your pain my pain it runs deep share it with me end simulation